Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopez as always and today we're joined by Dr. Eric Kimbra. He's an Associate Professor of Economics at the Smith Institute for Political Economy and Philosophy in the Argyris School of Business and Economics at Chapman University. His research uses experiments to explore the underpinnings of pro-sociality, cooperation and conflict resolution and to identify the origins of economic institutions such as property rights. He has also worked on finding ways to increase the supply of transplantable organs, measuring the spitefulness of individuals, understanding the sources of asset price bubbles, evaluating individual theory of mind, and capturing the discovery process underlying specialization and trade, among other topics, and those are some of the topics we're going to talk about today. So, Dr. Kimbra, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much, Ricardo, for the invitation. I'm, I'm happy to be here. It's my pleasure. Okay, so let's start perhaps with talking about norms. What are norms? I mean, for, I know you're an economist, right? So from an economic perspective, what are norms? So I, I think there's a few different answers to that question, all of which are related to each other. So on the one hand, um, let me start with some psychology background, because I think psychologists have a nice classification that economists are borrowing these days. So uh, psychologists distinguish between um, injunctive norms, which tell one what one ought to do, um, and descriptive norms, which are uh, descriptive, you know, patterns of actual behavior in the world. Um, you can add to that a definition that says if those two things coincide, if they're shared beliefs about what one ought to do, and a pattern of behavior consistent with those beliefs, then you have a social norm. That's Christina Bicchieri's definition of what a social norm is. In economics, there's also sort of a tension between the literature on norms on the one hand and the literature on conventions on the other hand. And so I think those concepts get blended together, like a convention might be driving on the left or right side of the road, um, which isn't normative in quite the same way that, say, a norm of fairness or kindness or generosity or whatever might be, um, but has similar structure to it. It's something that we all believe in. Because we all believe it, we all do it, um, and, and so on. So um, my interest in norms is mostly in the injunctive norms, in how our beliefs about what we ought to do influence mm -hmm. our behavior. But within economics, there's people studying all those aspects. Mm -hmm. And where do these beliefs come from? Do we know what are the origins of social norms? I mean, yes, in the sense that we know they have to be learned. We know, uh, you know, the, the content, the specific content of norms is sort of culturally contingent. You learn the norms of your society by interacting with peers, by learning from your parents, by religious and other moral teachings. So in that sense, we know where they come from. But I think uh, one of the big open questions in social science is why do patterns of norms have structure? Why, when we look at norms in the world, um, do they sort of hang together? Why are there certain kinds of norms that co-occur and other kinds of norms that don't? And, and that, to me, is a big puzzle. And that's kind of where I'm interested in going uh, next in my research. But do you mean across different cultures and societies? Yeah, I guess that's largely what I have in mind. But even, you know, cultures more than societies, because lots of societies contain many subcultures that with their own norms and rules. And I, and I mean, I think you kind of have these nested structures where, you know, take the community of programmers contributing to an open source thing on the Internet. 
right? So there's norms about how you do that and how much credit one takes. And, you know, all, so that's like one side, but you also have norms, uh, you know, that are about your attitude towards your country. And, you know, so nationalism has a set of norms associated with it. Parties have norms associated with them. If you're identifying with a political party, there's expectations that members of that party have of you by virtue of your shared membership. So I, I don't think, um, I think these identities that have norms associated with them are often overlapping. Um, and so not just nested, but also kind of overlapping. But um, in each of those cases, the way we acquire them kind of has to be the same. We must get it through interaction with others. Um, but the actual content of those norms, I think, depends on a lot of factors. And it, it's an important question that we don't really have a good handle on an answer to yet. Mm -hmm. Do we know if there are any human universals when it comes to norms? Are there, for example, norms that occur uh, that are similar across all studied societies? I mean, so there are some fairly obvious things that are normative um, and so basic to humans, I think that, uh, you know, you don't, you don't fail to see them anywhere, which is like the norm that you ought to take care of your family. Uh, if you're a parent, you ought to take care of your kids. That's sort of just an expectation that, that people have, no matter where you're from. Um, I, there's a large debate about the the kind of extent and nature of human universals and norms that I don't feel fully qualified to adjudicate. Um, I, I guess, you know, in all societies, you have to solve the problem of social interaction. You have to solve a problem of social order. And because humans have so many similarities, no matter where they live and where they're from, um, the same kinds of problems occur again and again. There's, you know, conflict over what's yours and what's mine. So I would say some basic notion of ownership, a normative notion of ownership is society independent. That's something that happens everywhere. Even in societies that have tried explicitly to stamp it out, you know, people weren't just taking the shirt off of each other's back. That was understood to be something that, that was owned uh, and ought to be left alone. So that's one that I think is pretty unobjectionably a universal. Now, the set of things to which ownership norms apply, how widely they uh they extend, that's a different question and, and highly variable, I think. But um, the notion of ownership itself is one universal. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this question makes sense, but um, do norms derive from sociality? That is, do we have a society that is structured in a particular way and then norms arise from it? Or is it the other way around? It has to be both, I think. Um, okay. I, I mean, I know that's kind of an unsatisfying answer, but you know, <laughs> I, that there's the sense in which um, what we do by the fact that we continue to do it becomes normative. So we produce norms by our actions, but also the kinds of things that we do are clearly shaped by the social structures around us. What, um, and so there, there's a feedback. There's, I think, a complementarity between social structure and norms that remains to be explored. Um, so I've done a little bit of work on this in one dimension, but I think um, that's probably not the only dimension and other people might, you know, tell me it's also not the, the prime dimension. I think that's really worth trying to unpack. Mm -hmm. What are some of the most important ways norms get enforced socially? Um, so gossip <laughs> is kind of, I think, maybe first and foremost, just talking about other people and, uh, you know, the worry that other people are talking about you is sort of a major constraint on the sorts of things that you do. And I don't mean you personally, I mean the global yeah, you. Sure. Um, I think uh, 
you know, direct punishment. So when you, uh, or direct reward for following the norm, punishment for violating it, those sorts of things um, are common everywhere. No matter what society you live in, there's some notion of punishment now. It doesn't have to be corporal punishment. I'm not, you know, um, but there are ways in which you are sanctioned. Um, so you could be excluded from a social group. Uh, you could be physically punished. You could be, you could have to pay a fine. You know, there's lots of sort of different ways that those norms can be enforced. And I think um, those clearly change over time. And there are norms about what are the appropriate ways to punish. So, um, you know, the, <laughs> the kind of attitude towards, for instance, spanking a child has changed massively in the United States in the last 50, 75 years, um, where before that would have been seen as quite common. And now if you were to do that, you know, people would call the police on you if they saw you doing it in public in a lot of places. So um, I, I think inevitably, because we are social creatures, normative constraints kind of influence everything that we do. Every choice that we make that is made in the eyes of others, we're thinking about what those others might say or do on the basis of what we say or do, and that, and that impinges on us. And those things, those concerns of others are, to me, the origin of normativity. That's where it comes from, is thinking about how you look in other people's eyes. Yeah. And why do individuals respect norms? Does it have something to do with the fact that they want to simply avoid punishment or is it, are they also used, I mean, respect for norms, is it a sort of social signaling, a social signal to signal to other people that they belong to a particular social group? I think both of those answers yeah. are are true. I and depending on the norm, one of those factors might be more important than the other. Um, I I think there's also sort of a that's approximate explanation for why we follow norms, but there's also sort of an ultimate explanation. Um, and I I'm persuaded by the evolutionary anthropologist's view. Uh, Joe Henrik in particular has made this argument, but that by virtue of being a species that depends on social learning. Uh, in order to acquire the information that <clears throat> that we need to get by, you know, almost everything we do uh, is some is based in a cultural practice. We we have so much information that we have to acquire in order to succeed. Well, in that kind of environment where social information is super important, being a good social learner is a valuable skill. It's something that would have evolutionary benefits to an individual, right? If you're good at picking up what other people are doing and using that, and so that generates uh, just an I think in part a natural propensity to uh, conform to acquire information about the world from other people. So I think there's some part of it that's just a it's kind of baked into human nature because of our evolutionary history. Um, but at the same time, that's, you know, sometimes doing the normative thing, socially learning uh, about how one ought to behave involves constraining yourself. It involves doing things that you don't want to do. And so that's where sort of this uh, proximate explanation about punishment, about identifying with the group uh, and so on comes in because you need something more when it's not really in your interest right now to do this thing to convince you to do it. And um, so, yeah, all of those factors play a role in, in determining uh, why people follow rules and norms. Mm -hmm. um, I guess one thing I would say is, you know, they look to what other people are doing. So um, if, you know, everybody else is violating some rule or norm, well, I'm not going to be a sucker and continue to follow it myself. So you definitely get those kinds of spillovers. Um, from other people. Uh, and in part, I think that's why, you know, punishment and other kinds of sanctions are implemented to prevent there from being too many people who are violating the norm, which would cause sort of a cascade of other people to 
to do the same thing and, and undermine the norm. Mm -hmm. So are norms mostly about uh, behavior, people's overt behavior, or also about the content of the particular beliefs that go associated with the norms? I'm asking you that because sometimes there's this discussion, I mean, for example, since we're talking about signaling our belonging to a particular group, sometimes we express particular ideas that are dominant in the group we're part of, because uh, simply because of that, I guess, just to signal to other people that they can trust us and, and things like that. Yeah, so I guess um, if you're just expressing and it's not costing you anything, um, it's hard to distinguish, you know, following a norm from just self-interest. Um, and so where we go looking for evidence that people are influenced by norms is when those things conflict, right? When by yeah. following the norm, you have to impose some cost on yourself. Um, and it's definitely the case, for instance, in politics. So I've worked with some political scientists on, on this, um, Mark Pickup and Alina DeRoy and uh, Eric Gronendijk on the ways in which identification as a member of an ideological group causes us to uh, incur some costs in order to maintain our identification with that group. So, you know, by virtue of being a liberal, other liberals expect me to support policy XYZ to vote for person ABC, you know, and even if it's in my interest to do otherwise, sometimes because I want to maintain my affiliation with the group, keep my group members happy um, because it feels good to just be identified with a group and to know that they identify with me, uh, I will incur a cost. I'll vote against my interests or choose something that, you know, causes me some short run cost in order to maintain that benefit of uh, an ongoing membership in, a, in an identity group and affiliation with an identity group. Mm -hmm. Do we know if there are any individual differences in, in how people follow norms? I mean, are, is it that some people uh, are more prone to following norms or more willing to following norms than others? I think introspectively, just based on looking around at my friends and family <laughs> and so on, that, we know that's true, right? That some people are more uh, sort of norm following, more, you know, more prone to conformity um, than others. Some are rebellious, some are, um, you know, contrarian, you might say. Uh, some are dissenters. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yes, I, I think clearly there is variation in that. I, w one question that I think is an open question is to what extent that propensity to follow norms is domain specific versus universal. So, you know, are you just a conformist person or are you conformist on some things and rebellious on others? Um, in my own research, we've developed some tasks that we use to try to measure this propensity at the individual level. So um, a co-author, Alexander Vostroknitov, and I uh, designed an experiment uh, about 10 years ago now in which, um, well, we were coming home from a pub. I was in the Netherlands teaching at Maastricht University at the time. We were coming home from a pub, and it was late at night. And in the Netherlands, there's all these little walking stoplights. It's a very, we were in Maastricht, which is an old medieval town, very walkable. And even at that time of night, students were stopping and waiting at the little walking stoplights, despite the fact that there were no cars, let alone, you know, even bicycles around. Um, 
to potentially run them over. There just seemed to be this norm that you stop and you wait at the stoplight. We were laughing kind of, you know, a couple drinks in us and said, well, what does that tell you about somebody? What is the fact that they're willing to stop at that light? Even, you know, it's costing them time. They're getting home later than they would otherwise. There's no around there's no police to punish them no car to hit them so what are why are they doing that and so we actually designed an experiment where we create this simulated situation in the lab so people control a little stick figure that comes walking across the screen stops at a stoplight the light is red uh, after five seconds the light's going to blink and turn green we tell them that time is money so you start out on this side of the screen with eight euros and each second that you spend getting across the screen costs you eight euro cents Right. And so the longer you take, the more money you lose. And we also tell them there's five stoplights. It takes about 25 seconds to just run through them all. But if you wait at each one of them, the light's going to take five seconds before it turns green. So you would double the time you spent waiting if you waited all the lights. And we just say in the instructions for the game, we describe the incentives. We say the rule is to wait at the lights until they turn green. And then we just measure how long people wait. So there's no punishment for running through the stoplight. We don't we don't say anything about it. If they asked us, hey, what happens if we run through? We would just say, everything you need to know is in the instructions. <laughs> so left it a little vague. Um, but it turns out that, you know, 62% of the people, about five-eighths of the people, uh, would wait the entire time. They would wait all 25 seconds. They would wait at all five lights. And the, the other proportion were, you know, some of them would rush straight through. Some of them waited at the first three and then rushed through the last two once they realized there were no consequences from it. Um, but... It also turned out that how long you spent waiting at that light is correlated with how wolf, uh, sorry, how norm following you are in a variety of other tasks. So we run these sort of classic uh, experimental games. I don't know how familiar your audience would be with, for instance, the dictator game or the ultimatum game. Or a, yeah, we've already talked about them in okay. the program. Uh, so in each of those games, people who wait longer at these stoplights are more prone to do the the normative thing. And how do we know what the normative thing is? We run another experiment where we ask people to guess what others will say is a, the appropriate thing to do. And so the idea is that the notion of a social norm, of an injunctive social norm, is shared beliefs about what one ought to do. And so we incentivize them to guess what the shared belief is. And then we use their reports as a measure of the norm. This is an idea due to Aaron Krupka and Roberto Weber. We, uh, we borrowed that task from them. Measure the norms and we show that people who wait at the lights do more norm consistent things in those games. So the longer you wait, the more likely you are to give an equal split in the dictator game. The longer you wait, the more likely you are to reject an unequal offer in the ultimatum game. The longer you wait, if we assortatively match you with other people who waited a long time and you play the public goods game, you'll sustain cooperation in the public goods game over time without decaying, which, you know, without punishment, there aren't very many instances in which that's been observed in the lab. That's kind of we were quite surprised by that. Same thing goes for the trust game. There's more reciprocity in the trust game. Um, and we also did this with common pool resource tasks. So people preserve a common pool resource longer um, or, and individually they take actions that are more consistent with trying to preserve the resource even when they're matched with people who aren't uh, in the public goods game. So across all of these sort of social dilemma tasks, the people who wait at the stoplight are more prone to follow the norm. Um, and so I don't know if we can generalize to say that the people who wait at the stoplight are going to be more norm following everywhere. Um, but at least across those social dilemma type contexts and the, uh, you know, games of allocation, games where money's on the line, it seems there's some generalizability of that task. Yeah. So we've been talking about norms, changing gears now a little bit. What are institutions? I mean, 
what are at what point can we say that something is an institution in a particular society? It's a great question. I, I mean, I think the kind of simplest answer is if it's written down somewhere, <laughs> you know, <laughs> if it's a rule, um, if there's an explicit uh, set of rules rather than a merely implicit set of rules, then you're on the path to becoming an institution rather than merely a norm. And, it, and often I think stuff that was once a norm is later codified in an institution. So there's a kind of continuum stretching from norms to institutions. Um, now that said, you can have an institution that's not normative, right? You can have an institution, you can have a set of rules that uses say government power to establish rules that people have to abide by. And we can all think those rules are not normative. We can think that those rules are ridiculous or you know whatever. So there are there is a separation between institutions and rules, um, but the distinction is primarily the degree of formality in my mind. How formal um, is the constraint? Mm -hmm. So, uh, but when you mentioned that uh, it has to have a set of rules that are written down, did you mean it literally? I mean, is it that pre pre literate societies lack institutions? Uh, yeah, when you ask it that way, I don't really want to commit to that position. That's a fair <laughs> point. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, so no, I don't think that's true. Um, I think a, you know, a narrative oral tradition that preserves a way of doing things could also be seen as an institution. And so it doesn't literally have to be written down, but it's the sort of consistency and the, um, the abstractness uh, that I think starts to distinguish an institution from a norm. I, I don't know that I could find the line where you flip from a norm to an institution in any one case, but out towards the tails, they're clearly different. The Supreme Court of the United States is an institution, right? The, the dollar uh, or a monetary system is an institution. Um, you know, uh, the handshake is a norm. Um, and so on that spectrum, those are clearly distinct, but somewhere between the two, uh, there, there's a muddy area that it's hard to distinguish. Mm -hmm. And are there institutions that are, for example, more personal and others more impersonal? Because I would imagine that some institutions are based on things like kinship. Yeah, I think that's right. So, um, you know, there's a distinction that economists make, for instance, Doug North is sort of is famous for this, the, between personal and impersonal exchange. Um, and personal exchange is exchanges between, uh, you know, people who are known to each other, non-strangers, basically. It's repeat interaction, small scale. Uh, you know, you engage in personal exchange with your family, with your friends. If you live in a small town and you buy from the same grocer and you have more than just a exchange relationship with that grocer, that's, that's more like personal exchange than impersonal exchange, even if it's happening in the context of a, a store. Um, impersonal exchange, the you know, quintessential example is buying something from somebody on the internet. I mean, that's not the example that North used, but that's as impersonal as it gets, right? A stranger in a far-flung place mediated by uh, eBay or Amazon or some other third party uh, with whom you also don't have a personal relationship. Um, that's, that's kind of the spectrum of impersonal exchange. So institutions, I think, also span that spectrum. Um, I, I guess... I would be inclined to say something like personal exchange is more governed by norms and impersonal exchange is more governed by institutions. I think that might be a useful conceptual distinction. I'm 
pulling it out of a hat right now, so I <laughs> have to think more <laughs> about it, but that seems like it makes sense to me. Um, and so can an institution be personal? Well, I don't know. I, I, I'm imagining, I think the problem is more often, so it seems to me that you're hinting at some of my work on the way that kinship has interacted with uh, institutions. And, and I think what we've identified is a sense of mismatch in which uh, personal level exchange based norms are being superimposed on formal institutions. So if you have a society um, that is composed of these tight kin networks or local um, exchange networks, and you introduce some subset of that to state power, say, to you know, give them a role in, in a government organization without also having norms of impartiality in the way that that power is supposed to be applied, you can end up with fairly perverse outcomes where people use the uh, impersonal power of the state for their personal exchange relationships, right? And that's sort of quintessential definition of corruption, I would say. Uh, we, we view that as corruption. And, and societies that are based on these tight kin networks in which people are, um, you know, bound up in these networks of personal exchange and don't have as diverse a set of um, impersonal exchange relationships. It's actually viewed as normative to use the power of the state in that way in some cases. Like if you don't do it, something's wrong with you. Why wouldn't you help your family? Why wouldn't you, uh, you know, give this contract to, to your cousin or, or whatever? Um, so can it, I, I don't know if that totally answers your question, but uh, I think it helps. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and by the way, since we're talking about kinship in your work, I've read about kin and ethnic favoritism. So does that have something to do with what you're, what you were just saying regarding corruption? Yeah, it so, does. It, exactly. I mean, so I think kin favoritism is, um, you know, one of those human universals that we were talking about earlier. People have this sort of natural uh, tendency to favor their children to favor their kin. Um, and uh, I think ethnic favoritism is perhaps a, a different thing. I mean, people who are co-ethnics are related to each other. That's just what uh, ethnicity is, is, you know, having common ancestors at some point. Um, but they're usually not very closely related to each other. You know, it depends on the ethnic group. It depends on you know, who the counterfactual ethnic group is that they might be interacting with. Um, but in general, kinship ties are much closer than ethnic ties. And so I've done some work um, where we've looked at other people's analyses that tried to use ethnic favoritism as an explanation for uh, corruption. And we've suggested that actually what's really being picked up in most of those cases isn't ethnic favoritism. Rather, um, it's something like kin favoritism and the norms that are associated with existing in a small scale kin based society. So it, um, we, for instance, we talk about uh, in economics, ethnic fractionalization as a factor that contributes to institutional uh, difficulties. So fractionalized places in the past, it's been shown that there's a correlation between um, fractionalization is kind of like an ethnic diversity measure. It's not exactly, but it's kind of like how much variation in ethnicity is there. It's usually, what's the probability if you drew two random people from a population that they would be of the same ethnicity? And the lower that probability is, the uh, higher is the fractionalization of a society according to the, these measures of fractionalization. So people have shown that that uh, is correlated with measures of institutional quality in sort of a negative way, that the more fractionalized a society is, 
the lower quality are the institutions of the society. And by low quality, you're aggregating uh, a bunch of different things, but often these are like corruption indices. So they, um, you know, they're based on measures of how hard it is to do business, how many, you know, how, how many bribes and expectation would you have to give to get to start a contract in that country or as a business person or, um, you know, how efficient is the judicial system? Um, things like that. Anyway, there's a, people have documented this relationship. Um, but we argued that there isn't a good theoretical reason really to expect that connection between ethnic uh, fractionalization and, and institutional quality. And we said, uh, um, a better explanation is actually that fractionalization at a smaller or more local level could account for this kind of thing. Because when you have a fractionalized society at more local levels, and by fractionalization in that case, what I really mean is uh, almost tribal organization. So the, the more you have these tight, local, dense networks of interaction and intermarriage, uh, the stronger are the incentives for you to help people in that network and help people in that network in particular at the expense of other people, because that's often what happens when you uh, operate in a government. So what we've shown, uh, sorry, if you operate corruptly within the context of a government, is what I mean to say. Um, so what we've shown is that if you find instead a measure of sub-ethnic fractionalization, we use the rate of uh, marriage between first and second cousins as a measure of this, um, that that is far more correlated with institutional quality than is the traditional measure of ethnic fractionalization. And indeed, once you control for the sub-ethnic fractionalization, there is no relationship remaining with, with ethnic fractionalization. Um, and so then we've gone on and shown that this is true within a country. So we were able to get data from Italy, from the different provinces of Italy about historical rates of in marriage. Um, turns out because in the Catholic church, uh, there are restrictions on marriage between cousins. You had to get a dispensation from the local bishopric, I don't know how you say that word, I've only seen it written, but let's assume that was correct. Uh, you had to get a dispensation letter, and those dispensation letters were actually stored in the archives. And so researchers have gone and they basically have the universe of marriages uh, for 50 years in all the provinces of Italy, and they total up the total marriages, and they total up the number of dispensation letters, and they get an estimate, uh, estimation of the number or the share of marriages that were between cousins that required a, a dispensation. And what we show is even within Italy, places that had lots of cousin marriage uh, are higher corruption areas today, uh, controlling for a whole host of other things that you might think influences that relationship. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you mentioned that because last year I had uh, Joseph Henrik on the show twice and we talked about his most recent book, The Weirdest People in the World. And uh, I mean, since we're talking about things like personal and impersonal exchange, uh, would you agree that uh, perhaps that prohibition of the Catholic Church against cousin marriage would have led to the development of more impersonal institutions? So I am kind of personally convinced of this argument, but I, to me it's under-theorized. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is like we don't really have a handle on the mechanism precisely by which this happens. So. I get the argument that says, okay, people rely on kin basically everywhere. That's just sort of a human universal. Kin-based networks are um, the heart of early human societies. And, you know, just because of lack of geographic mobility, you're going to interact with kin more than non-kin. And so norms are going to be adapted to solving the problems among these local networks. The church comes along. I think it's um, 
you know, there's pretty good evidence that the church was heavily involved in family marriage policies. That's, um, that's Joe's, uh, that's kind of the thesis of Joe's book. And yeah, he calls it the marriage and family program. There we go. Marriage and family program. Right. And, um, so they are trying to, at the time, you know, I think increase fealty to the church, basically take it away from kin networks and <laughs> transfer that fealty to the church. And, um, in doing so, it seems that a thousand years later, you know, but with a 500 year lag, uh, impersonal exchange relations really blossom in the places where that was maybe most stringently enforced, where those rules forcing people to uh, marry outside the family and thus forcing them to learn to get along with strangers, um, where those rules happened, people eventually did get better at getting along with strangers and built societies based on impersonal market like exchange. I think, I mean, the correlation is clearly there, but that, that period of change is not to me, especially well understood. So how quickly do the norms adapt uh, to favor impersonal exchange? Why, why would new norms develop at all? Why not enemy, right? Why not, uh, why not a complete breakdown of social order? Because you, you throw out the old norms. What's the reason that new ones would come in? And why these particular ones? I think that's kind of the question to me that needs to be answered. And I, I get at some level that they do provide a solution to the problem. <laughs> like it's clear that they are adapted to solve that problem, but it's not clear to me that they are the unique solution. Um, and uh, it's, I think it needs to be better explained why that transition happened. Mm -hmm. So you also study specialization. What is it about? So uh, uh, basically, to, to be more specific, how does specialization develop? Uh, well, I'm, I think Adam Smith basically got this right, and it's predicated on trade. Um, so, you know, it, with my uh, earliest research, when I was a graduate student, um, I worked with Bart Wilson and Vernon Smith, and we were doing these experiments about specialization and trade. So you would just put people in kind of a spare environment. They can produce red goods and blue goods but they don't know what they're good at. Uh, turns out we made it so that they were very good at producing one of those things and not so good at producing the other. Um, but they didn't know that. They had to sort of figure that out. And also they were in an environment where they could trade with other people. But again, we didn't tell them that. We just said, you have a house. You have to put stuff in your house if you want to make money. You have a field. You can grow stuff in your field that you can put in your house to make money. And we said, all right, now go. And they had a chat room where they could chat with each other. Um, and the question was, okay, if uh, you know, economists, I think, in general, assume that specialization and exchange are already happening. Um, and so, you know, we live in a world where that's clearly true. Uh, but as a consequence, there wasn't a lot of research, I think, on how those discoveries are made, how you get to specializing in trade. So this was an attempt to create such an environment where it was possible, but nobody knew about it, and ask, uh, you know, how well um, well, they figured out and my my part in this in particular was varying the extent to which property rights were enforced So could I steal from your house and field or not basically and how did that impact the evolution of specialization and exchange? Um, but what I think we found is that actually trade precedes specialization. So in all of our uh, Sessions that figured out how to specialize it was first because they started to trade so it, you know, we, we created it so that you wanted to consume these goods in some proportion with each other. So you might want three reds and one blue in order to earn three cents or two blues and one red in order to earn two cents. 
And if you had leftover stuff that wasn't in those proportions, well, you didn't really know what to do with it. It was like, oh, I have all this extra red. And having that little bit of surplus red, uh, people would think, oh, well, can I trade that with you? What if I give you some of my red? Um, and I would say they didn't use trade language. They used give language. They would describe it as, can I give you some red? Um, and it was like a switch flipped. As soon as somebody saw that you could give and uh, somebody else could give back, they were like, hey, what are you good at making? What is it that you're better at making? And so that specialization switch flips once the possibility of trade becomes apparent. So I think, I mean, at least in a temporal sense, what causes specialization is the possibility for trade. If you don't have trade, you're not going to get specialization. And so until people realize that trade is possible, they don't start to think about specialization. Mm -hmm. by, by the way, these studies you've been mentioning, are they then mostly in weird societies or are they also cross-cultural? Uh, so it depends on the paper. The, the specialization and exchange papers were all run um, either at George Mason University in the laboratory there or at uh, Chapman University in the lab where, where I am now. Um, the rule following experiments that I described earlier. We started with those in the Netherlands. That's where we were at the time. We've now run uh, related experiments in um, five other countries. And so we have some cultural variation, although in each case, it was usually with uh, college students in those countries. So it's not a representative sample by any means of the, of the countries as a whole. Um, so yeah, I mean, we use convenience samples. I think when you're interested in treatment effects, that's less uh, objectionable than when you're interested in measurement. So I wouldn't want to generalize the distribution of rule following from uh, an American sample or a Dutch sample to another society. I think you might expect there to be differences in, in that um, for cultural reasons, institutional reasons, whatever. Um, but, you know, it's more complicated, at least to argue that culture is going to change the sign of a treatment effect. So if um, I'm looking at how this change shifts behavior for it to shift behavior in the opposite direction seems that, you know, you have to be making a much more complicated argument about the effect of culture in that case. And so I'm less worried about those in context where we estimate treatment effects. Mm -hmm. uh, why would an economist study theory of mind? <laughs> I, I think it's a prerequisite to doing any game theory for one thing. I mean, we just take for granted that people have theory of mind when we do game theory. Uh, so, you know, the, a strategic actor trying to predict what another strategic actor is going to do is using theory of mind. Um, and so uh, I, I guess that's the quick answer, but it's also a fundamental capacity of humans. And really, uh, economics is the study of human exchange, human uh, decision making. And so if you're ignoring theory of mind, then you're kind of missing a, an important uh, killer app that humans have. Uh, and uh, are there individual differences in theory of mind? Is it that some people have more or a, high, a higher level or higher degree of theory of mind than others? Uh, yes, I mean, absolutely. So one of the ways that um, people try to identify autism in individuals is by conducting tests of their theory of mind. Uh, yeah. One of the deficits that's associated with autism is a lack of uh, sort of quote unquote mind reading ability, right? Um, 
to predict what others will feel, what they will say, what they will think. Um, that's a that's something that people with autism struggle to do in particular. Um, but you know, even within the the population that is not autistic, there's clearly variation on that dimension. Some people are uh, have an easier time imagining how others feel. And it, I mean, what's interesting to me is that though I think the capacity is natural, it's still something that you kind of have to teach people to apply. Like a lot of moral education with children is of this variety. Imagine how you would feel if you were in their situation, right? That's kind of the the way in which we teach kids a lot of their moral lessons is like, well, you did this. How would you feel if they did this to you, right? And so um, in that sense, I think theory of mind is also a prerequisite for morality. It's something that um, makes it possible to live in society. You have to be able to uh, imagine how others would feel in order to, you know, not anger them, <laughs> not, uh, not get yourself into trouble. So it has also something to do with the development of norms and institutions, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, um, I, I think, so I'm reading Michael Tomasello's book, Becoming Human, right now. I haven't finished it yet. I'm yeah. just about to the chapter on norms. But uh, he is talking about how um, theory of mind is necessary for kind of bilateral personal interactions. I have to think about what you want. You think about what I want. We kind of swap perspectives. We swap roles and go to a joint goal. And my understanding of his argument is that he says morality is like that, except with an imagined person from whose perspective we are observing our actions. So instead of me asking how you would feel, I ask myself how uh, an abstract person whose views represent sort of the sum of the moral judgments of everyone that I've entered, maybe not the sum, maybe not the average. I don't know exactly how it's aggregated, but right. So what I've learned from my moral education, thinking about how others view me, I have to put myself in the mind of that abstract entity and judge myself. So there's a, it's, it's a theory of mind, but it's actually a theory of a synthetic imagined mind. Um, that is how we self-regulate with morality. Mm -hmm. Okay, so before we go, uh, let's talk about a couple of examples of practical examples where we can apply knowledge coming from economics. Uh, you're interested in trying to understand how we can increase the supply of organs for uh, transplants, right? So uh, could you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, so that was an experimental project I did with Carrie Deck. Um, and so we created, you know, a laboratory simulation of, um, of an organ donation decision. And it, the idea was that um, some people have assets that outlive their uh, their own life. So we didn't describe it as organs to the subjects, but you have this asset when uh, you're, you're going to live for two periods, but if you were born with a healthy asset, it lives for three periods. And so the question is, when you pass, do you want to donate that? Um, and uh, there's no incentive for you to make that donation. Um, but if you do donate it and somebody needs it, you're going to provide a big benefit to them. So that, you know, in the lab, it was like, cost me zero dollars to donate. But if you need it, you're going to make five dollars, say. Uh, so I could just basically give you five dollars for free. Um, and we looked at the willingness of people to uh, to donate. We um, we compared that to a case in which uh, instead of asking people positively, do you want to donate? 
the presumption was that you were going to donate unless you opted out. So the American organ donation system is opt-in. You have to volunteer to become a donor. Some other countries, and I believe is Portugal one that has an opt-out system where you are, the default is that you mm -hmm. are. Yeah, yeah that's so, right. Um, so Portugal is taking advantage of this insight that actually, uh, you know, I don't know if people call it default bias or status quo bias or whatever you want to call it, but that if you give people a default option, they're likely to stick with it. They think they're, it's not clear why, but I think it has something to do with, we believe it's normative. There's a reason that it's the default. Um, and so, uh, right. So we tested whether that worked and yes, in the lab setting, making it the default increased the number of donations, um, but it didn't solve the problem. It didn't uh, eliminate all the, the scarcity of, these transplantable organs. And so we said, well, another way to do it would be to allow people to sell a, a future in their organ. So, um, you know, you basically uh, agree to sign up to be a donor and you're paid for signing up to be a donor. Um, and the people who are paying are people who are buying the right to get that organ if they should need it in the future, right? So there's a market where the buyers are people who don't know if they're gonna get injured or sick or whatever, but might need an organ. And the sellers are other people who don't know, you know, if I were to pass early. Um, and, and so basically you get people onto the donor list by arranging an exchange between the people who might need it and the people who might sell it. Um, and uh, that worked very well in our setting. Um, obviously, people have moral concerns about um, making a market for organs. In our case, I think it's less problematic than the sort of live organ uh, market. So for instance, you know, you have two kidneys, but you only need one of them to function. Um, mm -hmm. So that's why people can be a live kidney donor to say their friend or sister or whatever gets sick and they can donate a kidney if they're the correct blood type match. And um, people have proposed, and in some cases, uh, societies have actually uh, created markets for those organs where you can pay somebody for their kidney. And the idea is obviously that it's a dangerous surgery. Um, there's, a, you know, not a huge amount of risk, but definitely more risk associated with having that surgery than not having that surgery. Um, it's painful. It's going to put you out of work for a while. There's a lot of, there's costs associated with doing it. And so um, there's a lot of reasons that people don't just donate their kidneys to people who need them. And if you were to create a market for something like that, where people could be compensated, then the number of people who would donate would be much higher. But people worry that, well, who's going to be the one that wants to donate, right? It's the desperate people. Um, it's people who are poor, people who uh, maybe are effectively being coerced into donating by their circumstances that, you know, if they were in other, other circumstances, they wouldn't do it. Or uh, another argument that people make is, well, um, it's, you know, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be regretted in the future. So I'm willing to donate now, but I'm not correctly anticipating how I will feel about this decision five years from now. And so I can't be said to be making a fully informed decision and doing it. All these sorts of um, concerns that arise, I think with the live organ market don't really arise with the organ futures market where you'll already be deceased by the time you're donating. So it's more just uh, getting people onto these donor registries for, for deceased donation rather than encouraging live. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, what would be some of the best ways that we can apply on a political level to try to incentivize people to donate more organs? Uh, so there are a number of systems that have been proposed. Um, in particular, Al Roth has worked a lot on this. Uh, and so he's sort of the, the leading expert on 
increasing the supply of organs. But um, so one proposal that I've seen is uh, one in which by being on the donor registry, this doesn't involve any money changing hands at all. Just by virtue of putting yourself on the donor registry, you get priority should you ever be on the recipient registry. Um, okay. And so that kind of has this same incentive, right? You, if you put yourself on the list, then should you need one, you get priority over somebody else who's not on the list. Um, that's one. Uh, an alternative would be to actually implement the kind of market that we're describing. I think an intermediate proposal would be to cover uh, you know, health insurance costs for somebody who donates. So you could just say, um, if you're an organ donor, we're going to make sure you never pay for health insurance again. Um, mm -hmm. Or uh, you know, even just compensation for the time lost from work. So you, you basically tell, you know, you're not paying them to do it. You're saying, whatever costs you would have to incur as a consequence of going through this, we're going to cover them. Um, and I think, you know, it's a fine line between are you just paying them for it at that point or not. But if it's, if I think the way you, you frame it and the way you think about it matters, if it's just, you know, lowering the costs of doing this for somebody or defraying the cost of doing this for somebody, um, I, that seems to me to be a solution that maybe more people could get on board with. Mm -hmm. What about adolescent smoking? How can we tackle that problem? So I, my role in that project um, is actually not to help design the interventions to reduce smoking. Um, okay. I, was, I was invited onto that project to help them measure norms related to smoking. So um, there are two interventions being conducted side by side, one of which is a peer-to-peer -peer intervention. They, they find sort of the most influential peer uh, and then have that peer deliver a curriculum to the other students in the class. The other intervention is more of a traditional top-down, the teachers tell you about the dangers of smoking and so on. My job in that project was to measure norms at the level of the classroom. So what is it that peers believe other peers would say about the appropriateness of smoking, of vaping, of uh, selling cigarettes to an underage person, of uh, depicting smoking in film or uh, TV. So I, I was doing measurement there. I'm not, I'm not the one qualified to give the solutions. <laughs> okay, so uh, I, I mean, what, what did you learn by doing that study? So uh, we were really interested in whether there were going to be different, the studies called the mechanism study, um, different yeah. mechanisms by which these two different interventions have an impact on uh, adolescent smoking behavior. So um, we basically have, we're collecting data that most people don't collect when they run these interventions. So we have every person in the classroom nominate uh, a network of their friends. So we have a picture of the entire social network in the school. We also have normative beliefs about smoking related behaviors, both before and after. And we have these two different interventions. So the idea is to trace the impact of the interventions through the networks via the changes in normative beliefs. And and having all those pieces of the puzzle simultaneously is something that, to my knowledge, no study other than ours has had. And so that um, it's really the ability to get a fine grain look at transmission of norms through a network uh, that is the intellectual contribution. And so, in fact, the way the study is designed, there's there's no control group. Um, it's not a it's not a horse race between these two different interventions. Um, I guess in previous research, both of the interventions have been shown to be effective compared to a, a control with, with neither of them. And so we, we're sort of taking for granted that they work. That was the idea. And then 
to trace um, how they work. Do they work differently through the network and through changes in normative beliefs? And in addition to normative beliefs, we're also measuring smoking intentions. We get a CO2 reading um, from the kids that are, uh, maybe it's an O2. Yeah, no, sorry, it's a carbon monoxide CO reading. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have the, uh, the ability to measure both changes in behavior, changes in beliefs, changes in knowledge about smoking, and ask how that sort of is transmitted through a network. Mm -hmm. Okay, so just before we go, uh, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, well, the place I am most active is just posting new papers on my website. I, I do have a Twitter account, but I'm not really particularly active on Twitter. I think I've tweeted maybe three times in the last year. Um, it's at Bemusement, so uh, you can find me there. Um, but uh, otherwise, yeah, just Eric Kimbrough, if you look for that on Google, I have a Google site where I post all my papers. I give um, links to every working paper and every published paper on there. So I try to make that as open as possible. Anybody can find my work. Um, I'm on Facebook, but I, you know, I don't, uh, I have, it's my friends on family on Facebook. I use that to post pictures of my children, essentially. <laughs> 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 okay, so I will be leaving uh, a few links to your work in the description box of the interview. And Dr. Kimbrough, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much, Ricardo. I really enjoyed it. Hello, everybody. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. This channel is now three years old and it's based on your support that it keeps living and uh, please if you can take the time to uh, go to my patreon page and consider making a pledge there otherwise i also have links to paypal and in the description box of this interview uh, this interview is the channel more generally is sponsored by Enlights learning and development done differently check their website at nlights.com and I, will, I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and supporters Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perga Larsen, Lagorero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimir, Craig Healy, Adam Kessel, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Erika Lenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Kintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, George Pinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguenzo, Mikkel Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Felicia Stevens, Fergal Cusson, Yevan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Nuno Machado, Don Ross, João Alves da Silva, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslan Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Eira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Desaraújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Mirren B, Nic Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, 
Pavel Ostasevsky, my producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Sergio Codriano, Luis Caetano, Tom Van Egdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Sardis France, and Niruban Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michel Rujewski, Rosie, James Pratt, and Matthew Lavender. Thank you for all.